It's a pleasure to be with you uh, tonight, this evening. And um, I'm going to try to give you some correspondences um, that should take you into the level of the mystical union between romantic visions East and West. Um, the sort of cross-cultural studies that um, exist, comparative mysticism, so to speak, between the Muslim Sufi and the Western poets um, are very seldom made, and when they are made, they're usually unsuccessful. Um, if we look at the two, the, the two schools of poetry which the Persian Sufi tradition, poetic tradition, is similar to, one is the English metaphysical tradition, and the other is the Romantic. Um, so, if you go back to the 17th century, poets such as John Donne, Andrew Marvel, uh, Crawshaw, Traherne, Vaughan, there, there's, a, there's a, a unity of vision there that you could, you could draw on and, and, and make comparisons to. Um, I'm going to approach it from a different angle, um, I mean from an angle which is uh, mystical and based on, the, on, on various literary critics that I will mention. Um, but what I hope to show is that there's a common metaphysical worldview, a common theoerotic worldview, a common ethical worldview between Islam and Christianity. Um, now the basis of the, the, my approach here is the similarity in the Platonic traditions between Islam and Christianity. Um, we know, however, far less about the literary history of the Platonic tradition in Islam than we do about the same in, in Christianity. We don't have any Arabic version of a Platonic dialogue preserved. So we don't know how much the Sufi poets took from Plotinus or from Plato. But, um, so that, that's an issue, that's a problem, although they, there was, there's a great influence there. The English Romantics, however, were totally immersed in um, the study of Plato's dialogues. They knew it in the original Greek. Um, they read their Plotinus. Shelley, for instance, he translated the Symposium into English. It's a superb work of translation. He knew Marsilio Ficino's commentary on Plato very well on the Symposium, which is the greatest work on love in Renaissance thought. Um, and he also was, was well aware of Thomas Taylor's translations of Plato. Um, so he was what's called a poeta doctus. He was, a, he was a, a theological poet. He knew all of the Platonic references and, and, and he was a, a full-blooded Platonist. Um, now, the interesting thing is that he also composed imitations of the Ghazals of Hafez. So he knew the Persian Sufi tradition to some degree, um, as did most of the Romantics. I mean, Tennyson knew Persian better than Fitzgerald did, for instance. Um, Coleridge, as a schoolboy, had read the Neoplatonic writers. Uh, he knew Thomas Taylor's translations. Um, Keats was also steeped in Greek and in the translations of, of Plato by Thomas Taylor. Um, Blake paraphrased Thomas Taylor's translations of Plotinus and, and Plato 
um, in his prophetic books actually used he, he ex took extracts from them when we go to the to the United States um, the transcendentalist movement which is basically the same as the, the romantics but they were called transcendentalists Thoreau, Emerson, Hawthorne uh, Whitman again all of these people knew their Plato and Plotinus very well um, now so I think although there's a difference in the reception history of Plato in the Muslim world and among the Sufi poets um, in Persian in particular I'm talking about this evening um, I'd like to underline that Plato's thought and Neoplatonism are probably the most important part of the mutual philosophical heritage which are shared by the Christian Romantic and the Muslim Persian Sufi poets. However, there's a temporal span of five centuries between them. There's varieties and difference in the reception history, as I mentioned, of Platonism. There are theological divergences. Uh, so you might think that this pursuit of parallel and convergences is a bit like looking for the horn of a unicorn. Um, but there are scholars that have taken the similarities very similar, uh, very uh, seriously and um, written about this. And I'm speaking of people like Parveen Lolo, Masoud Farzan, Maria Menocal, Lu Lucy Lopet-Baral. These are people that have actually worked on this and they've, they've shown that there are uh, very solid correspondences. Now, the approach that I'm I have towards this subject this evening is um, taken from Northrop Fry's Anatomy of Criticism where he speaks of two different types of literary criticism one he calls archetypal and the other he calls anagogic okay now archetypal criticism he describes as tracing the associative clusters of symbols within a body of literature where the, the critic is concerned with a poem's relationship to the rest of literature. So he's trying to fit poems into the body of poetry as a whole. Um, so if we turn and we look at Persian poetry, Persian Sufi poetry, this would be the analysis of the Sufi symbols, the estilaat that the Sufis use. And as you probably know, the, the Sufi Persian poets, they shared a common publicly hermetic lexicon. I, I realize this is an oxymoron, publicly hermetic. But everyone knew what, what the lexicon was, but it was hidden. It was a secret lexicon that was public. So if you were a poet, and if you were a critic, and if you were a connoisseur, you knew what what, what these, um, these symbols were. They were esoteric signs, so to speak. So, um, but on this archetypal level of criticism, you're, you're on a, a sort of literary level, so you cannot make valid, very valid comparisons. So, for instance, the symbol of the Narcissus and the symbol of the Cypress have completely opposite meanings in English Romantic poetry and Persian Sufi poetry. So on this level, they, there's no... The, the, you know, the comparisons don't work. Um, however, there are certain archetypal forms, and I'm here using the word archetypal in, in Fry's sense of the word, not Jung's sense of the word. So it's completely different from, from Jung. But 
one archetypal theme which, is, which pervades both traditions is, of course, probably the most common is carpe diem, of seizing the moment, the present moment. So this is this grand archetypal theme that you find in ancient Egyptian poetry, you find it in Italian poetry, in Latin poetry, Sanskrit poetry, Persian poetry, English poetry, French poetry. And all the great world literatures contain expressions of this idea. And if you look at your, your first exhibit there on the handout, um, Exhibit 1, I've given you uh, some verses, and I'm not going to read most of this poetry, I'm just going to let you read it, because I won't have time to... You're just going to have to read to yourself while I talk, uh, because I won't have time to, to cover the whole territory if I read every line. But here is a great translation by Fitzgerald, and in many ways Fitzgerald's translation is actually better than the original Persian. Uh, it may not be as accurate, I mean, it may not be accurate, it may not be a literal translation, but it's better poetry than the original Persian in many cases. And here, it's both as good poetry and more or less literal as well. Um, and this is, you know, the theme of Carpe Diem. And I've, I've given a, an American, I've given Thoreau, Thoreau, who's a transcendentalist, I've given uh, some verses by him where he, he basically... Both the poets are, are, are encouraging the reader not to cloud your delights of the present moment with melancholy. Uh, don't think about the brevity of life. Just, just enjoy the present moment and, uh, and, and, and take in the present moment and, and enjoy the time as it flies. Um, another common theme is seeing no evil. This is a common moral theme that you, you, know, you find in Blake, for instance, mutual forgiveness of each vice, such are the doors of paradise, Blake says. And, and, and Hafez says, I said to the master of the tavern, what road is the road to salvation? He called for wine and said, not revealing the faults of other people. So you find these similar themes, again, in, in the, these grand archetypal themes. Now the other type of criticism, which I'm going to be using this evening, to make my comparisons is anagogic criticism. Now, at the anagogic level, the comparisons actually make perfect sense, as I'm going to demonstrate, I hope, to you tonight. Um, it allows us to transcend the civilizational specific references of the poetry, the ethnocentric interpretations of the literature, and discern the universal symbols underlying the exoteric literary archetypes. Fry explains that in the anagogic phrase, literature imitates the total dream of man, and so imitates the thought of a human mind which is at the circumference, not at the center of its reality. When we pass into anagogy, nature becomes not the container, but the thing contained. And the archetypal universal symbols, the city, the garden, the quest, the marriage, they're no longer desirable forms that man constructs inside nature, but themselves the forms of nature. Now, if you look at Exhibit 2, um, there on, on page 1, I believe, where I have a quotation from Attar. And I've translated this into pretty bad English poetry, I'm afraid. And I've compared it to, to Andrew Marvel, so you see this idea of, of heaven and earth inside the soul, that the mind is 
containing reality. This is a very important subject in the anagogic phase. Emerson writes, the writer who's a seer is caught up into the life of the universe. His speech is thunder, his thought is law, his words are universally intelligible as the plants and animals. The poet yields us a new thought, unlocks our chains, and admits us to a new scene. This emancipation is dear to all men, and the power to impart it, as it must come from greater depth and scope of thought, is a measure of intellect. Therefore, all books of imagination endure. And this word imagination is very important. And I'm going to talk about it a lot. All of which ascend to that truth that the writer sees nature beneath him and uses it as his exponent. All the religions of the world, all the religions of the world are ejaculations of a few imaginative men. So, the universe of the, uh, the anagogue is contained is not contained with any, uh, within any actual civilization or set of moral values. Um, and I'm, here I'm, I'm quoting Fry. Um, we, we don't any longer have a group of characters within a natural setting, but this, the idea is you have a sort of universal man who's also a divine being, or a divine being conceived in anthropomorphic terms. Now, Fry notes that the form of literature closest to the anagogic level is scripture or apocalyptic, uh, ap- ap- apocalyptic uh, revelation. Now, what does the word anagog mean? Huh? Good question. He's taking, Fry is taking this word from biblical criticism, classical Christian biblical criticism according to which there's four levels of the interpretation of scripture. There's the literal, the allegorical, the moral, and the anagogic. Yeah? Now in Islam, as you all know, Dr. Winter has written about this, um, there's a very similar theory. There are four levels of meaning of the Quran. Some people, they say there's seven levels, nine levels, seventy levels, <clears throat> but basically four levels. So you have the outer sense, the inner sense, the tropological sense and the anagogic sense, yeah, the the matla, the, the the sense that rises up vertically into the other world, yeah. So, for the Sufi poets and for the medieval Latin poet, the medieval Renaissance poets, this type of scriptural criticism was also applied to poetry as you find in commentaries on Dante's Divine Comedy. And you find it all the time, this type of criticism being applied to Persian Sufi poetry. And this is part of what Shenu, in his book, Nature, Man and Society in the 12th Century, calls the symbolist mentality, where there's an upward, upward reference of all things, the anagogue, they're all ascending up, and this is their natural, the natural dy- dynamism of everything, everything as, as a symbol. And this transcendent nature is not just a, a pleasant addition to the nature of things, but it's rooted in what he calls the dissimilar similitudes of the hierarchical ladder. It's the very reality and reason for their being. Now, um, look at Exhibit 3. 
Um, I've quoted Coleridge, and he's putting this into poetry. I'm, you know, I'm theolo- I'm theolo- theolog- I'm speaking theologically, yeah. But he's giving you it in, there in poetry in Exhibit Three, and he talks about we are in this low world and our backs are to that bright reality. Of course, it's taken from Plato's Republic, um, and um, we don't understand uh, the the mighty alphabet of the world, yeah. This is, of course, the same thing, if any of you are students of religion, what Mircea Eliad calls the cosmic hierophany. Uh, all of nature is, a, is one hierophany. All of nature is, a re- is divine revelation. Um, if we look at the criticism that has been applied to Persian miniature painting and to Persian poetry, I'm speaking here of Ananda Kumaraswamy, who wrote a brilliant essay called The Philosophy of Persian Art, he quotes this verse of Sadi in ex, uh, Exhibit 3 that I've given you there, where a student of weaving says that I'm not actually, I'm not actually um, you know, weaving the phoenix and the giraffe and the elephant, but the maker himself is determining what forms I, I weave. Now, Sadi's doctrine in, in Exhibit 3 that I've just uh, that you, you, you have there on your, your handouts um, is a versification of, a, of, a, of something that's found in Plato's Symposium and in the, in the Phaedrus. That all the arts are phantom reflections and forms of an ideal beauty and progeny of heavenly love. Um, exhibit 3, again, I've quoted, I've quoted the Fairy Queen of, of Spencer where he, he speaks of this, every spirit as it is most pure and hath in it the more of heavenly light, so it the fairer body does procure. Uh, I've also quoted in Shelley's Prometheus Unbound um, the same idea being expressed, Exhibit 3, um, where he, he talks about um, the, the, the forms where with the divine light is cast on the form and these gathered rays which are reality visit us the progeny immortal of painting, sculpture, and rap poesy. Now, so on this anagogic level, the theological and the religious and the cultural distinctions that separate this Persian Sufi and the English Romantic poets vanish. They evaporate. Um, literature at this level, and I'm quoting Fry, is viewed as existing in its own universe, it's no longer a commentary on life and reality, but contains life and reality in a system of verbal relationships. At this phase, he says, only religion or something as infinite in its range as, in its range as religion can possibly form an external goal. So this anagogic perspective is a religious perspective, a spiritual perspective. Now, you're going to ask, well, what, what, what does this mean to me? How can I understand poetry, what, what is anagogic criticism going to, how does that help me? Well, I'm going to give you six different ways that it, I'll show you six different ways that, uh, six different themes that you can, you can compare the two uh, poetic traditions. The first theme is, again, carpe diem, seizing the moment. The second is nu etorium, the eternal moment. The third is mundus imaginalis, the, 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 um, the world of imagination. Uh, the fourth that I'm going to skip, because I won't have time, is annihilation and mystical death. Uh, the, the, the fifth is the eternal feminine. 
and the sixth is the unity of religions. Okay? So I'm going to try to expose the correspondences that, that exist between these two traditions in using these six comparisons, or actually five comparisons, because I'm skipping one. But we can take any questions you have on that level, we can cover in the question and answers. Now, I spoke about Carpe Diem before in, on, in terms of archetypal criticism. When we move to anagogic criticism, we're now talking about seizing the metaphysical moment. It's different from seizing the temporal moment. The metaphysical moment is different. Okay? This in, in Persian, this is called vakt, the metaphysical time. Um, it's an eternal now that transcends serial time. Okay? It goes outside of serial time. He who lives in the moment, he who seizes the moment as it flies, lives in eternity, sunrise. Who said that? William Blake. <laughs> so, you have to seize the moment as it flies, and you live in eternity, sunrise, which is the anagogic level. Of course, sunrise is matla. Matla means the place where the sun rises. It's the rising of the sun. You live in eternity. So, the Persian Sufis' expressions of uh, expression of this carpe diem, this metaphysical, this spiritual carpe diem, is, is expressed in precisely the same way as the English Romantics. Um, so, but in order to understand that, you have to we actually have to explore what this eternal now is. So. I'd like you to turn your attention to Exhibit 4, uh, the Persian text from Shabastudi, where he talks about his, his experience of metaphysical time being transported outside of serial time, which we're all imprisoned in. Um, and he composed this vast 1,000-line poem, uh, in the, he says, in the space of a few hours. And he says that very clearly in his... In his, his um, his verses here that I've translated after all their earnest pleas that I composed a reply in verse I, I composed it without thought without premeditation in the space of, of a few hours it just all flew on out flowed out um, and again in another of his poems he has the same idea where he says what spiritual vision senses in a breath of mystical consciousness no pen can write in the space of 50 years so you receive more knowledge in one breath in one moment than you do in 50 years' time. And what does William Blake say? Exhibit 4, every time less than a pulsation of the artery is equal in its period and value to 6,000 years. For in this period the poet's work is done and all great events of time start forth and are conceived in such a period, within a moment, a pulsation of the artery. Same thing. And I've given you another um, quotation from him there where he talks about this eternal moment. And I've given you, in Exhibit 4, again, a quotation from, my, in my opinion, the greatest sort of poet, uh, uh, poem of, of, of the theo-erotic tradition. Erotic I'm using not in the sexual sense, but in the sense of divine love. Okay? Theo-erotic, love of God. Um, and this is his, his poem, uh, Epicyridion. Um, which is immersed in, in Plato. Um, and he, he talks about, he says here, if you divide pleasure and love and thought, each part exceeds the whole. And we know not how much, while any yet remains unshared, of pleasure may be gained, of sorrow spared. This truth is that deep well when sages draw the unenvied light of hope. 
These are very profound lines. It seems like, oh, he's just romanticizing. No, they're extremely complex metaphysical doctrines. And they're taken from Proclivus's elements of theology, propositions 26 and 27, where Proclivus says, in giving rise to the effect, the cause remains undiminished and unaltered. They're also taken from Plato's Symposium, where Diadema, who is Plato's teacher of divine love, teaches Socrates... Uh, sorry, Socrates' teacher, and she says that the supreme intellectual beauty is internal, unproduced, indestructible, not subject to increase or decay. All other things are beautiful through participation in it. Now, Shelley is also in these verses speaking about elongation of moments. Pleasure and love and thought, these are moments. They're elongated, and the transient and the temporal is deepened by the light of hope. So this is called Vakshanasi in Persian, knowing the moment. And I have a quotation in Exhibit 5 from Hafez, where he speaks about this. Rise and come, those cognizant of time, heaven and earth sell freely for an idol's company in a cup of drosmus wine. Again, Shelley is perhaps the closest to Hafez in this respect. In Exhibit 5, the, the lines beginning, all is contained in Eve. Now, this is from his dramatic poem, Hellas, where he speak, where the character who's speaking is Hezer, the prophet Hezer, okay, the hidden prophet. Shelley calls him Ahasuerus, the wandering Jew, but it's the same as Hezer, okay? And in this eternal now, Ahasuerus encompasses the past, the present, and the future. He knows it all. And so he says, Ahasuerus says, thought alone in its quick elements, will, passion, reason, imagination cannot die. They are that which they regard appears. The stuff whence mutability can, relieve, can weave all it has dominion over. Yeah? Worlds, worms, empires, and su superstition. What has thought to do with time or place or circumstance? <coughs> Wouldst thou behold the future, ask and have. So, it's all contained in, these, in the inner man, in the divine man, so to speak. So this leads us, this knowledge of the eternal now leads us into the most important aspect of this anagogic level, which is the mundus imaginalis, or the world of imagination. Now, when Shelley says, will, passion, reason, imagination cannot die, what does he mean? He's talking about the internal faculties, the internal senses that open up, and I'm quoting here Blake, the immortal eyes of man into the worlds of thought, into eternity, ever expanding in the bosom of God, the human imagination. The human imagination, Blake calls the bosom of God. Please look at exhibit 6 on page 4. And I'm quoting here Coleridge. It's a very famous line from Coleridge. <coughs> Imagination is the reflection in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation of the infinite I am. Very profound idea. And you find exactly the same idea in Exhibit 6 in the, that single verse by Shabbos Tadi, Reflection is passing from the false to the true to behold the infinite whole within the finite part. Now, imagination is the key uh, word here. Um, this 
idea of imagination plays a leading role in the Sufi tradition, a leading role in the Renaissance, in Renaissance Hermeticism, a leading role in, in English Romanticism and American Idealism. Corban writes, we encounter the idea that the Godhead possesses the power of imagination. He's, he's talking about Ibn Arabi, but he could be talking about the Romantics. And that by imagining the universe, God created it. That he drew the universe from within himself, from the external virtualities and potencies of his own being, that there exists between the world of pure spirit and the sensible world, an intermediate world, which is the idea of idea images, the Olam Mesol as the Sufis put it, the world of supersensory sensibility. In other words, it says a sense beyond the senses, of the subtle magical body, the world in which spirits are materialized and bodies spiritualized. In other words, our, our senses become spiritual and our spiritual nature becomes sensual. That this is the world over which imagination holds sway, that in it the imagination pr produces effects so real that they can mold the imagining subject. Now, for the English Romantics, for Blake, for Shelley, for Coleridge, and for the Sufis, the powers of feeling, reason, and imagination comprise the quintessence of being, because existence itself is thought. Thinking is, is, is existence, yeah? Blake says, mental things alone are real. What is called corporeal, nobody knows its dwelling place. It is a fallacy. Its existence is an imposture. Vision or imagination is the representation of what eternally exists. So, in other words, everything non-mental is immaterial. Of course, don't take that literally. Everything non-mental doesn't really exist. Now, this is exactly what if you look at Exhibit 7 here, from Shelley's uh, Has the Wandering Jew, Hazel, say, the future and the past are idle shadows of thought's eternal flight. They have no being. Nought is, but that which feels itself to be. Yeah? Now, um, Emerson writes, this is in Exhibit 7. The universe is an externalization of the soul. The earth and the heavenly bodies, physics and chemistry, we essentially treat as if they were self-existent. But these are the retinue of the being that we have. And you find the same idea that, that being is coming from the, from, from the divine mind and that thought alone is real of course in Rumi, and I've translated in Exhibit 7 on page 5, at the top of page 5, some lines from Rumi on this. Um, and I'll just le read the last eight lines um, to, to draw your attention to what he's saying. Thought, the mass of men thinks insignificant, but puny thought gushed through the world and aided. So you see that from just one thought all trades and crafts throughout the world subsist. All residents and villages and manor houses and palaces, all peaks and hills and parks and fields and brooks and streams, the sun above, this firmament and earth and sea, like fish within the sea, by thought, all live and breathe. That's my translation of Rumi. Not very good, but I tried my best. Um, so, to sum up this idea of, of imagination and, and, and its importance, 
we can say that the Sufi and the Romantic poets affirm the creative power of imagination to animate and thought to generate this universe. Okay? They both have similar anagogic approaches to reality. They both have similar anagogic approaches to the moment of poetic inspiration. And these are not just literary topoi or themes. Okay? That's a shared symbolic discourse basically coming from the Platonic tradition. Now, I had uh, a few exhibits to do with mystical death, Fanon, comparing the English metaphysical poets and the, and the Romantics, um, but I'm going to skip over them, um, but I'll be glad to, to review that. Those are in Exhibits 8, basically. Um, and I'm going to go to the Eternal Feminine, because I won't have time if I, if I spend my time on that. So, the fifth theme that I want to discuss is, is the Eternal Feminine. Um, and the idea here is that by medium of earthly forms of terrestrial beauty, the soul can best engage in contemplation of God. Now, of course, the supreme exponent of this doctrine in Islam is who? He died in 1240. Quick, come on. Huh? She's, she's too shy. If not, be, come on. Yes. He's the supreme exponent of this idea. Um, now, the fundamental idea also appears in Petrarch's sonnets to Laura, in Dante's Vita Nova, dedicated to Beatrice, um, in all the great poets of the Renaissance, uh, in John Donne's early poetry, especially in Spencer's Fairy Queen, um, and in, in Exhibit 9, on page 7 on the top, I've, I have some verses where these are sort of like the, <laughs> the verses always cited. These verses were actually cited by Emerson in his essay on the poet. And, and uh, so they expound this idea that, that, you're, that the terrestrial forms reflect the divine beauty. Yeah? And it's by engaging in love of these forms that one ascends to the divine beauty. Um, it's a platonic teaching that the divine beauty is reflected in the mirror of the eternal feminine and you find this in Shakespeare and Don Spencer in the English Romantics in the American Transcendentalist um, in Exhibit 9 I've uh, in, again in Epicycidian Epi, Epi of, of, of Shelley which is probably one of the, the best you know, uh, expressions of the, of the Platonic doctrine in the English Romantics, I, I quote these, these verses where he says, See where she stands, a mortal shape imbued with love and life and light and di- deity. Um, and later on in the, in the same poem, um, he talks about the, 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 the lover and the, and the beloved un- uh, mixing into one and, and becoming one. And, and basically he's saying, He's, he's, he's paraphrasing Aristophanes in Plato's Symposium where, where Aristophanes had speculated he was saying that the lover regains his lost wholeness by merging with the beloved. Now, this same Neoplatonic doctrine that the soul is an emanation from the one and that, that we are all seeking to go back to that one through loving the forms of beauty you find in Rumi's Masnavi, you find in the Fususa Hikam of Ibn Arabi, 
you find in the Lama'at of Iraqi, you find in the Lavoyer of Jami, and this whole tradition of the Sufi metaphysics of love is, is very similar to the Romantics, because they're on a sim- they have similar Platonic basis. Um, Shelley describes in another of his poems, and Andonesis, the vision of the one beyond temple um, generation and decay. These are very famous lines. Um, I just will quote them. One remains the many change and pass. Heaven's life forever shines. Earth shadows fly. Life like a dome of many colored glass stains the white dome of eternity. The white radiance of eternity. Till death tramples it to fragments. So, everything in this world is like a dome it's a prism and it's reflecting the divine rays um, we're in this shadow play of, of divine beauty Rumi says that which makes you wonder and marvel at the faces of the fair is the light of the sun reflected through a glass prism it is that many colored glass which the one light appears as so many hues like this to you so make yourself fit to gaze on the light without a glass, lest when the glass is broken you be left blind. Now, if we look at Exhibit 9, this is uh, a very clear depiction of this idea that I've just expounded in the Romantics. And this is from Fakhreddin Iraqi. He died in 1273. He was a follower of Ibn Arabi. And uh, this is on page 8. And I've I have the translation from William Chittick and, and Peter Wilson. So th- this whole selection gives you an idea of, of, the, of the lover gazing on the, on the mirror of the beloved and how the beloved shows himself into all of these, or herself if you like, into, into the, these, these mirrors. Um, if you look at Exhibit 9 uh, from Shelley, you find a very similar idea where he says, that light whose smile kindles the universe, that beauty in which all things work and move, that benediction which the eclipsing curse of being, sorry, the eclipsing curse of birth cannot quench, that sustaining love which through the web of being blindly wove by man and beast and earth and sea and air burns bright or dim as each are the mirrors of the fire for which all thirst. Again, it's the same idea. Now, Shelley, is writ- he wrote the poem for a woman called Amelia. But Amelia is a platonic theophany. She's an earthly vision of this divine beauty, this divine love. Um, now, in the Persian Sufi tradition, perhaps the most famous verses that describe this are from... Um, Hafez, which you can find in Exhibit 9. Um, can you give me another five minutes? Yeah, five, ten minutes. Um, and I'm going to go into a bit of um, metaphysics here, so be patient with me. It'll be, I think you'll be rewarded. Now, the, the verse here is, One day in pre-eternity, a ray of your beauty. This is Exhibit 9 on page 8, the bottom flashed forth in a blaze of theophany, then love revealed itself and cast down its fire that raised the earth from toe to crown. 
Now, Hafez is speaking of this beauty, this permeating creation, love-consuming creation, and he's inspired by Ibn Arabi's theory, actually, of the two types of theophany, two types of tajalli. Um, so, God's beauty shows itself forth. Tajalli is a showing forth in two manners. First, there's a theophany of the essence, the divine essence, which Ibn Arabi calls tajalliya zati, the, the, the theophany of the essence, and then there's the theophany of the divine attributes. Yeah? So, all creation is this mirror reflecting God's love and beauty according to Hafez's metaphysic and Ibn Arabi's thought. And during the second theophany, the second showing forth of the divine beauty, love comes from its intelligible condition in the divine essence. It appears in external phenomena, it permeates all of existence, and it appears in the, in the love that the human beings have for each other. Yeah? And they call this love eshka majazi, figurative love, love of forms. Majazi also means fictional love, love that's unreal. Yeah? And this love leads to the divine love. Al-majaz ganjalil al-haqiqat. You've heard the Arabic saying, the fictional leads to the real. Yeah? Shakespeare writes, from women's eyes this doctrine I derive. They sparkle still the right Promethean fire. They are the books, the arts, the academies that show, contain, and nourish all the world. Again, this is the same idea. The divine love coming through a woman's eye, projecting this beauty out into the world. Ficino, in his commentary on Plato's Symposium, which again I said is the most important work on love in Renaissance Europe, he talks about the single face of God shining in three mirrors. The mirrors are the angel, the soul, and the body of the world. The angel here corresponds to what the Muslim philosophers call the first intellect. You know, avalakal halakal Allah al-ab. The first thing God created was the intellect. Yeah. The soul is the universal soul, or, um, which you find in Avicenna. It's a very common, the nafsikol li. Yeah. Um, and then you have the body of the world, the materia, the the hayulah, the the form. Now. The angelic mind, says Ficino, sees the face of God imprinted in its own breast. <coughs> it immediately admires what it has seen, it cleaves passionately to it forever, the grace of that divine face we call beauty. The angel's passion clinging inwardly to the face of God we call love. Now you find exactly the same doctrine in Hafez's verses, where he talks about the, the I just read for you, it's there on your exhibit, um, was it exhibit 9 the bottom of page 8 and he talks about this pre-eternal ray of beauty it sets the world ablaze with love and in Ficino's commentary on, on a similar passage it's exactly the same thing it's, it's elaborated um, Ficino says beauty is a certain lively and spiritual grace infused by the shining ray of God first in the angel then in the souls of men then in the shapes of the bodies and sounds, a grace which through reason, sight, and hearing moves and delights our souls. In delighting, carries them away, and carrying them away in flames of the burning love. Now if you look at the, at the second verse there, at the bottom of page 8 of Hafez, 
Your face revealed itself. It saw the angels had no love. Yeah? So then it turned like fire and consumed with jealous rays and struck the soul of man. So you just notice I've been using Ficino to write a commentary on Hafez. And it works perfectly. Ficino died in, in 1499. And he's a, uh, he was a, 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 a Christian priest who translated Plato and caused the Renaissance. <laughs> the key man behind the Renaissance. Um, but they, they share the same doctrine, metaphysically, spiritually. There's a, there's a similar doctrine. Um, if you look, go back to Shelley's stanza in Exhibit 9 on page 7, the bottom of page 7 that I cited before, you see that this light imagery is the same light, that, the, that light whose smile kindles the universe, that sustaining love which is reflected in the, in the mirrors of man and beast and, and earth and sea and air, in other words, throughout all the levels of the body of the world. This is the pre-eternal epiphany that's coming down from above. Um, okay, so just to conclude um, my talk, I'm going to talk about a similar idea that's found in Romanticism and among the Sufi poets, Persian Sufi poets, which is that the unity of religions. Now, Romanticism held that the essential conduct of mis- content of myths and religion was, of, was similar. Um, and that the differences between religions was superficial. So there's no real absolute distinction between Christianity and other religions. So it's, it, it practices a kind of hermeneutics of myth and religion that looks for the inner unity there. And this, of course, is central to the pluralistic vision of Persian Sufi poetry. And in Exhibit 10 on page 7, page, uh, sorry, page 9, I translated some... So the... the uh, verses by Sheikh Baha'i, who's the greatest Shiite theologian um, of the Safavid period. But he was also the greatest Sufi poet. I'm sorry, it's a paradox, but it, it exists. Um, and I don't know how to resolve it. But there he is. Uh, he's, a, he's a very orthodox Shiite theologian, but a very unorthodox uh, Sufi poet. And you see here, he's, he's talking about um, the unity of all of these different religions and how... God exists whether it's in the tavern or the church or the mosque or the synagogue or whatever. Um, If you look at exhibit 10 on page 9, the middle, uh, I have two verses from Hafez where he's talking about the same idea, this ecumenical idea that the spiritual quest exists within everyone, that all the various religions have the same spiritual aim, and that love is not restricted to the Sufis or to any other mystical group or any other religious group. Um, now, the Romantic poets had very similar ideas to the Sufis, and in fact they were influenced by the Sufis. Um, on Exhibit 10 I've quoted um, Tennyson, um, which those verses, the never-changing one and the one ever-changing many in praise of whom the Christian bell, the cry from off the mosque and vaguer voices of polytheism make but one music harmonizing pray. This was inspired by uh, his study of Persian poets, Persian mogul poets, in fact, I mean, according to the scholars. And in Exhibit 10, I have um, a famous verse by Orphe, where he, he speaks of the, in the same vein. Orphe was a 17th century Persian poet, lived in India for much of his life. 
where he talks about the lover not knowing the difference between Islam and, 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 or infidelity. He's like a moth impassioned over fire. So one appears to him the burning pyre outside the Hindu's pagoda or candle burning in the Kaaba. Um, Blake wrote a small little treatise called All Religions Are One. And it's a, it's a sort of um, small one-page summary of his ideas, and he, he notes, the religions of all nations are derived from each nation's reception of the poetic genius, which is everywhere called the spirit of prophecy. This is actually Exhibit 10 on page 10. So, these ideas that, of the unity of religions you find in the English Romantics, basically they go back to the Cambridge Platonists of the 17th century, and the Sufi, Persian Sufi tradition you find the best expressions of it in, in poets poet, poet such as Rumi, Hafez, and later again in the 17th century in the, um, the school of Esfahan, Platonists. The, 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 uh, Henry Corbin has a whole book called Le Platonion, Le Platonions de Perse, the, 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 the Platonists of Persia, which is the school of Esfahan. So I think, I, can, I, I hope I've summarized that. that if we use this anagogic approach, um, we can actually understand uh, the myths and symbols in these different traditions uh, much better. Um, I haven't gone into the geographical comparisons. We know that the, the English Romantics loved, they, they had a great affection for Islam and great affection for Islamic places. So a lot of them, a lot of them, Sati and Shelley, Byron, they, they actually based their poetry in the Middle East or in the, in the um, Mediterranean. Um, I haven't gone into that side. Um, and I think I'll just conclude with a quotation from Henri Corban, where he talks about the idea that there used to be a common ground of the esoteric. Um, and he says it's been eradicated by the secular mind having a distaste for metaphysical speculation. And he says it's a subtle, unacknowledged form of agnosticism that raises a frontier between what is known as philosophy and what is known as theology. And he concludes, there is no such thing as Christian philosophy or Judaic philosophy or Islamic philosophy. If we trace carefully the origins of this declaration, we collide with the frontier erected between philosophy and theology, and there can be seen a consequence of the refusal of the esoteric, which is nevertheless common to the religions of the book. It is that esoteric which traditional philosophy and sciences postulate, and which has isolated them from official philosophy and theology to the extent which, in the West, these refuse what remains the axis of Oriental thought. So I think that our refusal of the esoteric one aspect of our refusal of the esoteric is this unwillingness to acknowledge what Northwood Fry calls anagogic criticism, which I hope I've shown you a bit of this evening. And um, the last quotation, if you want to read, um, which I think expresses this in a Sufi form, is... Um, 
I don't actually, I haven't actually, don't have it on the sheet, so I'll read it for you. This is from Sanoi. He's a 12th century poet. When the song you sing is for the sake of faith, who cares if it is in Syriac or in Hebrew song? When the place you seek is for the sake of truth, what matter if, you, is your, if your abode is Jalbaqa or Jalbasa? These are two imaginary places in the other world, by the way. Thank you very much. that there's no real translations of the Platonic dialogues. But, we, but the Neoplatonists in Islam, I mean, but the Neoplatonists were, were much better known. So there is a Neoplatonic tradition. Um, so there is this idea of sort of literary influence going on. There is a, a you know, just as the, as the great English Romantics knew their Plato backwards and forwards and knew their Plotinus backwards and forwards, um, the, the Sufi, the Persian Sufi poets knew um, the Platonic tradition at least through the theology of Aristotle, which was, you know, from, from Platonus's sixth Ennead. So there is that very rich vein of, of, of uh, Islamic Platonism which exists. Um, again, Islamic Platonism is much less understood is much less is much less researched and much less understood than Christian Platonism. Um, so for, I guess for the uh, because of the lack of availability of text. So yes, there is that there is that element of, of, of influence on the on the literary level. But there's also the anagogic level, which again I'll try to to explain tonight, which is 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 an inner reality. And of course, we don't believe in inner realities. We have outlawed inner realities. You know, it's not part of our mental furniture. We don't believe in you know the spirit world. We don't believe in the angels. We we don't believe in any of these otherworldly things. Who do you think you're talking to? Uh, well, I'm saying maybe not in this room. Maybe not in this room. But I'm saying in this society, God is a dirty word. I'm quoting Prince Charles, by the way. This is what he said. You really can't speak about, you know, uh, the, the, the the spiritual level, um, and uh, and and make sense. Uh, so, I mean, what I'm saying now, I could say very easily in Iran, 
and everyone would understand what I'm saying. And I can say pretty easily in this audience, and you're all, I hope, understanding it. But if I were speaking in a university, in a formal university, my own university in Exeter, they would think I'm a bit kooky. <laughs> uh, uh, although I have everything footnotes here. <laughs> but, uh, so, um, so to, to go back to your question, it's, it's, um, it's, there, there's this inner realm which they're all accessing. And there's no difference between Judaism and Christianity and Islam or Buddhism, whatever. They're all accessing this. But one has to have a, one has to appreciate that. And um, that, again, is the, that's the science of comparative mysticism, which I haven't gone into at all in this lecture. So that's a whole other dimension. I have, I've totally ignored it, which is the dimension of contemplative disciplines. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if I could just make a, just a couple of observations on this talk, which I enjoyed immensely, uh, and, and then just put a question to you. Um, the observations first. I mean, Corbin himself emphasizes mm -hmm. that Oriental is not a, for him, a, a geographical term. Mm -hmm. um, so, in a sense, uh, there's this, this, there's a longing for the Oriental both east and west mm. here that you've been describing. Um, and another observation is the when you're talking about the purely philosophical influences, mm. sometimes within religious traditions those are more powerful when they in the Christian tradition have been baptized. Mm -hmm. Uh, and sometimes not recognized as having pagan roots at all. Mm -hmm. Or similarly, in the Islamic tradition, where they, they have the name of Aristotle, or they, mm -hmm. <laughs> they're, going, they're not recognized directly. So sometimes, mm -hmm. I think it's worth bearing in mind that some powerful mm -hmm. influences are powerful precisely because they're not mm -hmm. uh, directly recognized, but they're having often implicit mm -hmm. influence um, for, for often historically rather peculiar reasons. Mm -hmm. um, obviously a key element, it seems to me, is a particular form of thought that we call today, but it's quite anachronistic, mm -hmm. Neoplatonism. Mm -hmm. But what we call Neoplatonism emerges out of, well, a sort of oriental context, or Middle East, I mean, mm -hmm. Alexandria, mm -hmm. primarily, Mm -hmm. as a very syncretistic context mm -hmm. where quite possibly Philo is playing a role. Mm -hmm. The relation between Gnostics and we don't know quite who the Gnostics were. Mm -hmm. So in this pagan tradition, mm -hmm. there may well be a good deal of what was referred to as the, the, uh, the Attic, Moses, mm -hmm. or Semitic elements in mm -hmm. what looks like uh, Hellenic mm -hmm. thoughts. Um, and just my, my question, really, sorry, this is rather mm -hmm. long. Um, when you talk about the imagination, mm -hmm. wouldn't you say that we have to be a bit careful here? Because in the culture you've described as our culture, mm -hmm. imagination does often mean just creating mm -hmm. or spinning certain productions. Mm -hmm. The mind mm -hmm. that are independent of any archetype mm -hmm. or objective 
mm. realm. That's mm. clearly not what we're talking about when you're using mm. the term imagination here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, Coleridge, as you know, in his biography, yeah, he goes into what imagination is in depth and detail. And um, uh, Emerson as well in in his essay on the poet. So these people had a a certain spiritual understanding of the imagination, as you know quite well. Um, And they they didn't reduce it to fantasy. So I'm talking about the spiritual imagination here with Coleridge and Emerson. It's not just fantasy that is the, the modern meaning, basically. So, um, and in the Sufi tradition, you have, thanks to Korban's studies, you have the whole tradition of the Olam Mesol, the, the, the independent world of imagination, which is also very similar to what the Romantics taught. So, um, the imagination doesn't just become a power, uh, a, a faculty between reason and fantasy, but it's actually uh, a faculty that accesses the divine directly. So it's a correlative um, of, of theophany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, uh, I ha- I in, my, in the footnotes to my article, I have uh, I've quoted, you know, the the, the various references to this because people have written on this. So it's not the level of fantasy there in in the English Romantic tradition. And I I think uh, there's a there's a book written about 50 years ago by Notopolis called The Platonism of Shelley. It's a huge book, 700 pages. And she goes into this in depth and detail of, uh, of the different... Of, of, of Shelley's theory of imagination in relation to Plato. Um, so there's that. Now, that's f- uh, as far as that goes. I think one thing I'd like to add to your other observation is and I think for this audience it's important for me to say, um, and it's something that's not understood at all by the media, and I even think that it's hardly understood by Islamic scholars uh, outside Dr. Winner and, and a few other experts, but there's a whole counterculture in Islam, which is, um, I call it the tradition of the religion of love. I have a whole book called Hafez and the religion of love in classical Persian poetry. This is, which is a love, where Islam becomes a love mysticism. Um, and I'm speaking about this here in, in this talk tonight. So it's a counterculture. It's an Islam of love. It's not an Islam based on legalistic interpretations of the Quran or, or jurisprudence or uh, hadith-based, uh, you know, text. But it's an Islam of, of feeling, of passion, it's the Islam of the Qawwali tradition in Pakistan, of the Sufi tradition in Iran, of the whirling dervishes in Turkey, and uh, in some con- and of the Naqshbandi order in Afghanistan. So it's 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 a significant part of the populace, um, and they have a great literature, but it's not understood by the media because why? By the Western media, why? Well, because mysticism in our culture is marginalized. And so we look at, at the Islamic culture and we look at the Middle Eastern culture and we, we cannot conceive of a culture that is where marifa has a central value, where marifa, gnosis, is, plays a central role. For, because it, it doesn't play a central role in our culture. 
But in the Middle East and in Islamic cultures, it does. And the mystical does. I mean, in various places and in different degrees, in various levels of intensity. So that's to answer your, I mean, your talk about, yes, they were baptized, so to speak. Yeah, these, these ideas were baptized. When, when, when Rumi has written 25,000 verses that no one can imitate, nobody can write a better poem than the Masnavi, and he celebrates Sama for music, and he creates, after he dies, thanks to his order, 150 centers from Sarajevo to Moscow and from Nicosia in Cyprus to Tabriz in Iran, where his book is being studied, then people don't really pick too much at him and say he's a kafar. No. Because he, ha- he, he has a huge tradition behind him. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I think you were next. And then okay. Yeah. Um, thank you very much for the wonderful talk. I'm a poet, and at times I look at things mm-hmm. like the clouds passing in the sky, and I see the Niagara River mm-hmm. before I see the clouds. Mm-hmm. Now, I experience that sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I feel this is a rare moment, more rare than, for example, looking at a tree and then contriving a kind of what it might look like. Mm-hmm. So can, can you help me understand that experience where you actually are looking at something and you see it in the term of imagination mm-hmm. before you see it in the term of its physical appearance? Um, well, you know, I didn't go into... Com- uh, into contemplative disciplines in this paper, uh, in this talk. Um, but I think that that relates to the realm of mystical states, what's called Elm al-Ahwal, the science of mystical states. So you have a certain mystical state in Persian they call hall, a certain mystical moment that overcomes you, and you begin to see these correspondences and they're expressed in, in, in what seems like dream imagery, po- poetic imagery, but they're they're actually part of these levels of, of the anagogic level. <laughs> That's the way I would see it. Um, but only you yourself know exactly how genuine or, or, or um, whether it's fantasy or imagination. It's hard to discern the difference. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, I heckled you just now. Um, I didn't hear it. <laughs> I heard it as praise be to God. Go on. <laughs> I, um, I've got two small questions. Um, First of all, how do you derive anagog? Mm-hmm. I haven't. I can work out ana, which is up. But mm-hmm. Gog does that. Does that come from Greek as well? I'm yeah, sure. it's part of the, the tradition of, of biblical criticism. It means the upward level, the ascending upwards, <coughs> going upwards into the higher realm. Is the gog part of Greek word as well? Or yeah, anagog is from Greek. Yeah. And then on page four, exhibit six, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. there's a slightly volume, um, what looks like a comparison between two different meanings of the word reflection. Which show, which like, poem is it? Um, exhibit. Shabby story. What? Shabby story, reflection is passing from the pulse to the truth. Okay. Tafakor raftanas bartel su yahak. Bejozandar di Danakolomodlak in Persian, yeah? Okay, which, which exhibit is that? Yes, okay. Exhibit 6. Yeah, yeah. Um, I 
no person, but does reflection there mean something like meditation? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's tafakur. The word is tafakur. You know, Ghazali has a whole book in the Ehyo and Tafakur, what, what Tafakur is, right? Doesn't he have a whole book? Yeah, yeah. So, um, Tafakur is not thought, not what we're engaging in now, but in what our poet is engaging in. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a thought of the heart. So, it's the, it's the access to the anagogic level. So, when Chabasudi says, Tafakur Raftanas Batel Suyahat, Thought is going from what's false to what's true. The In the finite part, seeing the universal whole. In other words, to see the world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower, as Blake said. To hold infinity in, in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. So that's what it is. In the Coleridge, mm-hmm. imagination is the reflection in the finite mind. No, that's a different reflection. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's, that means a, a mirroring image. Yeah. It's not a different. Yeah. Can it be both? Uh, no, it's a two different meanings. What this reflection means thinking. The first reflection in Shabbosity, reflection yeah. is passing from false. In other words, this, this type of meditative con yeah. it means meditation. But in the second one, can it be both meanings? No, I think he, he, he's saying it's a reflection in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation of the infinite. In other words, in our finite minds we have a, a, a divine reflection coming in. It reflects. You have, a, you have a, an image which is cast into your mind which wakens you up. And that image gives you a, a certain knowledge. He's also we also have the ability to reflect on that. Yeah, but that's not what Coleridge means, I don't think. He's not talking about the, the reflection in the sense of meditation. He means reflection in the sense of mirrored image, as far as I understand. He's suggesting that something transitory as well. It could be like the fading coal that... that um, Maybe. It could, it, could be, it could be transitory. It could be long-lasting. It depends on our consciousness. You wrote a book called Aids to Reflection, mm-hmm. which was just in that sense. Really? Oh, I agree. I think, mm-hmm. I think here, mm-hmm. it's the primary sense of the mirror image mm. in the theophanic yeah. sense. Mm. Just to the etymology, actually, the Greek ago is I bring or I lead, so the anagogic mm-hmm. is the I bring or lead up. So mm. that's, that's thank you, thank you. Yeah. Any more questions? Yeah. Yes. Hi, just very good. I'm I came in late, so maybe you mentioned it. Is there any what? Is, are these thoughts and ideas that you've been discussing and expressing contained in a single book somewhere? There's a book coming out called Sufism and American Literary Masters, edited by Amin Razavi, Medi Amin Razavi, which is coming published by State University of New York, and this is the sort of introduction to that book. What I've talked. Uh, Sufism and American Literary Masters. It'll be it'll be out in November. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about the book by Adonis, um, Sufism and Surrealism? Um, yeah, I actually quoted it in the first footnote of this um, talk, um, and I said here the reason 
for the lack of understanding of comparative mysticism is primarily scholars' poor grasp of the nuances of Sufi mysticism and doctrine. For instance, the Syrian Lebanese poet Adonis attempted to read Rambeau as an oriental Sufi poet in his Sufism and realism and surrealism. But because of his unwillingness to seriously engage with the mystical doctrines which the French voyant shared with the Sufi visionaries, his comparisons remain provocative at best and unconvincing at worst. Um, so the problem is, again, this refusal of the esoteric. The, the, these, you know, he's, he's a good poet, Adonis, but does he have a background in the study of Sufism? No. Does he want to have a background? No. Does he want to eschew his secular sort of philosophy? No. So how can you approach, how can you talk about the influence of Sufism on Rambeau without engaging with Sufism? And he doesn't do that, at least from my memory. You may have a better, un- a better opinion of him than I do, I don't know. My wife agrees with you. That was my opinion. Yes. Towards the end of your talk, mm-hmm. you said something about the subtle unacknowledged narcissism, which, which is the cause of uh, unacknowledged uh, agnosticism. So, agnosticism. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I didn't understand who the author of that was. That's Corban. At this point, we really have to lower the curtain, but thank you so much. It's been a really rich and interesting evening. We've given us a lot to think about. It's good to bring together people who understand the Western and Eastern traditions. It's not mm. really easy to find that Reflections as well. <laughs> oh, we have, oh, oh, yeah, singers. Wonderful. Some of our students here, They say that, you know, uh, it, the, the words have to lead from ball to hall, from, from speech to mystical experience, and of course it's only in the singing that you experience the poetry. What I was talking about was only a, a corridor into this, this, uh, this event here. Karima bibakhsha ibarhalima ke hastam asire kamande hawa Karima bibakhsha ibarhalima ke hastam asire kamande hawa nadare mugheraz tu fariyad ras tu hi asiyara khatabak shubas nadare mugheraz tu fariyad ras tu hi asiyara khatabak shubas 
نگاہدار مارا زراہ خطا خطا در گزارو سوابم نما نگاہدار مارا زراہ خطا خطا در گزارو سوابم نما زباتا بود در دہاں جائے گیر سنائے محمد بود دل پذیر زباتا بود در دہاں جائے گیر سنائے محمد بود دل پذیر حبیب خدا شرف انبیاء کہ عرش مجیدش بود متکا حبیب خدا شرف انبیاء کہ عرش مجیدش بود متکا سوار جہانگیر یکراں براک کہ بگزشت کسر نیلی رواک کریمہ بی بخشائے برحال ماں کہ ہستم مسیر کمل دے ہوا تنم فرسو دا جا پارا زہ جرائی رسول اللہ تنم فرسو دا جا پارا زہ جرائی رسول اللہ دلم پشمر دا آوارا زیسی آیا رسول اللہ دلم پشمر دا آوارا زیسی آیا رسول اللہ 